Corinthians. So we get to one of the, probably the best known passage in 1 Corinthians. If you turn in your Bibles or in the sermon outline to 1 Corinthians 13, we're actually going to dip back and take the last phrase right before it starts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of, and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the great, almighty, eternal and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and conform our lives to it, that in nothing may we be displeasing to your majesty through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown... Lucy turns to Charlie Brown and says, you know what I don't understand? I don't understand love. And Charlie Brown says, who does? Explain love to me, Charlie Brown. You can't explain love. I mean, I can recommend a book or a poem or a painting, but I can't explain love. Well, try, Charlie Brown, try. Well, let's say I see this beautiful, cute little girl walk by. Why does she have to be cute? Huh? Why can't someone fall in love with someone with freckles and a big nose? Explain that. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Let's just say I see this girl walk by with this great big nose. I didn't say great big nose. Charlie Brown's last comment. Not only can you not explain love, you can't even talk about it. Well, this morning we're going to talk about love. 
to see if we can get around to understanding it better. And as Dr. Dave has mentioned in previous sermons, the common misunderstanding of this passage is that it's designed for a wedding ceremony, that it is a love poem for lovers, romantic. Um, But as he said, it's not quite right. If it was, Paul would have used a different Greek word for love. There are four Greek words for love. Uh, The only two of them are used in the New Testament. If you've heard one of my marriage homilies, you've you've heard this before, that uh, phileo is brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And storge, deep affection, often between parents for children. But the two that are used in the New Testament, the very common idea also of ours is eros, romantic love, and agape. And that's the word for unconditional, deep, abiding, even self-sacrificing love. The most noble love that looks out for other people first. And so every use of the word love in this chapter is that word, agape. So we're going to dig down into what that means. Now these verses can work in the context of marriage, because certainly husbands and wives should strive to love each other with that selfless love as well. And there's all very admirable goals to shoot for. But the context of this chapter is the context of 1 Corinthians. We're going to see that even deeper. But the, the, the worship service, the community of faith, and spiritual gifts. And so the first thing that we see is that Agape love gives meaning to everything else. And I'm gonna, let me reread the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this chapter is in between two chapters talking about spiritual gifts. And it's clear that the Corinthians were asking Paul about those gifts. And probably they were comparing theirs to each other, one another, perhaps competing over who had the best spiritual gifts. And so Paul takes this chapter to digress a little and say, listen, I know you're pretty wrapped up in how cool these these new gifts that you've received are, these abilities that you have from the Holy Spirit, but let me put them into perspective, right? Gifts are great. In fact, The verses before and after this chapter say essentially the same thing. Desire the gifts. One says desire the higher gifts. The other says desire the spiritual gifts. So there should be a desire. The the Holy Spirit gives them to you. Please use them well. But there's something greater than these gifts. And if it's not present, then the gifts don't really matter. 
And he goes for the most extreme examples, right? If I had all knowledge, if I spoke in these exotic languages, if I had impressive faith that moved mountains, if I gave away my stuff, if I was a martyr all the way to death and never denied the faith, what does he say? Without love, none of that matters. You gain nothing. You are nothing. That's pretty extreme of Paul. Because I I try to imagine if I had all knowledge, man, they'd be inviting me to conferences all over the place. right? If I gave all my stuff away, somebody might start a ministry just being inspired by that. I mean, if I had so much faith and brought spiritual revival, man, the Christian community would be impressed. But Paul says, no, none of that's impressive or useful by itself. You have to love God and love people for any of it to matter. You think that your spiritual gifts make you mature, but if there's no love involved, you're not mature at all. Earlier in the book, he's called them spiritual infants, right? You're just a loud, annoying drum with no symphony around you to make music. Don't confuse great gifts and abilities or a winsome, captivating personality with godliness. Now, many teachers have a saying up in their classroom. There's probably a few in this school. Kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? I think that's a very similar sentiment to what Paul is arguing here. Pastors, ministry leaders, all Christians need to remember that always. We in the PCA often think knowledge is enough. I mean, I'll get my degrees, I'll become an expert theologian, and then my ministry will be great as people just sit at my feet and drink up the wisdom. But this section echoes what was said earlier in chapter 8, verses one. verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, what does this look like practically? I don't know if you've thought through some ways that we do this. Uh, If you're really great at debating theological or moral issue uh, and you take that online, but you're a jerk and you have no tact, guess what? You're not accomplishing much. You can volunteer to pray and read the scripture in your community group. You can memorize the passage and wow everyone by quoting Calvin. But if you're arrogant and condescending to the others in the group, nobody's listening. You are a clanging symbol. You could fund an entire church building or give huge sums to every missionary that asks you. But if you don't care about the poor and never speak a kind word to your fellow believer, God's not very impressed. You know, you could have done everything right 
as a teenager, as a college student. You could have saved yourself for marriage. You stayed away from drugs and alcohol. Probably even come to church when your parents slept in. Did everything right. But if you failed to love those around you, you judged and you condemned and you refused to help those who struggled, Paul says you've missed the point. You've gained nothing. When the flooding that hit Houston after Hurricane Harvey was at its peak, many worship and community centers in the city opened their doors to help people who were stranded and flooded out of their homes. And one church in particular was singled out for not doing that. I don't know if you saw the news coverage. It was Joel Osteen's church, Lakewood Baptist Church. And I I honestly don't know if the criticism was fair or not. The church said that it was unsafe to let people in, and and I want to believe that. And um, I know that they organized and blessed their community after that, but man... The news media jumped on that as an example of a very successful church with a gifted pastor who just seemed like they didn't care about their community. And it's, you know, you can earn that reputation in a day and undo decades of goodwill and hard work loving your community. Because even non-believers, people that don't appreciate the Bible, understand intuitively that if you don't have love, you have nothing. So Paul looks, he's looked now and said, what happens when love is absent? Now he looks at what it's like when love is present. What is love like? Verses 4 through 7, the qualities of agape love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. First, I want to see why uh, 1 Corinthians is the right letter for this passage for these verses. I mean, if it's just a kind of a love poem, like a Shakespearean sonnet, like we often hear it pulled out. If it's just like Elizabeth Barrett Browning's, how do I love Lee? Let me count the ways. Then Paul could have put it anywhere, right? Could have thrown it into Galatians or First Timothy, right? If it doesn't, if it's just this kind of ode that he writes in there. But Let's think about what we've seen in 1 Corinthians so far. I don't know if you thought about this as you heard these words, but very early, the big problem that Paul was addressing is that the Corinthians were choosing their favorite leaders and uh, pitting them against each other and, and taking sides. And, but love does not insist on its own way. It is not resentful. Chapter 5, Paul comes right out and says, You are arrogant. Your boasting is not good because love does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And they were boasting and allowing scandalous sexual activity in their midst. But love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Chapter 6 rebukes them for taking each other to court. 
Love does not insist on its own way. It endures all things. Chapters 8 through 10 show that they were impatient with one another in their meals, not bearing with their weaker brothers, insisting on their freedoms. And chapter 12 shows the envy and boasting concerning spiritual gifts. I think Paul is taking all of these separate issues and saying that if you understand true agape love, you'll know what godless, godliness looks like in each one of these situations. Right? Everything that's come before culminates in this chapter. Now, if we had all afternoon, we could break this down and really trace out all kinds of uh, ideas and aspects of each, each one of these uh, qualities that he lists. We don't have that kind of time. I would recommend R.C. Sproul's Loved by God as a great book that spends several chapters um, just working through all of the uh, biblical text associated with each one of these qualities as well as the implications that each one has on our behavior. Um, we're only going to kind of skim this. But, you know, and some of these descriptions are pretty obvious, right? I don't think anybody's challenging the idea that love is not rude or arguing that love is resentful, right? There are seven positive and eight negative qualities listed in these verses. And, but often, as you see, as you analyze them, there, many of them are two sides of the same coin, right? If you're patient, you're also not irritable. If you're kind, then you're not rude. And I think that a lot of these qualities, many, if not all, are summed up in the one phrase, love does not insist on its own way. Right? Because a love that seeks what is best for others, that loves the Lord first, but also knows to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of the royal law, right? And all aspects of agape love then flow from that. Kindness, humility, patience, truth. We can't leave this morning with thinking about how we can reflect God's love better. Okay, man, we need to have some good application because agape love is not about Valentine's dates, right? It's about selfless giving actions that embrace other people, whether they are worth it or not. Love meets the needs of those around us. Love weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. Love cooks meals, cleans houses, visits the sick, sends cards of encouragement, prays for those in need, assists the deacons in helping the hurting. Love places the interests of others above itself. Hope you spend some time in your community groups or with your families reflecting on how we live this out. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
This is particularly timely for you, maybe, John. David Strain says that this is the best verse to preach to yourself when you're being talked about poorly, when you feel attacked or wounded by other people. There's plenty of Psalms, for sure. But love overlooks people's pettiness and shortcomings and slights. It bears and endures everything, believing and hoping that greater things await. Love takes the long view that it patiently does what is right, knowing that God will work all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The last section reminds us of our glorious future and the fact that agape love is the eternal gift. Verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as, I've, as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This section, in, on the one hand, it's pretty easy to explain, but on the other hand, it has a much deeper, more intricate uh, explanations that, that's actually kind of highly debated. That On the face of it, the main idea is that love is going to outlast all of these spiritual gifts. I hope you see that. It will endure into heaven when we'll be able to understand in deep ways the things that we've only understood partially on earth. But verse 10 is hard to understand. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, what's the perfect? Doesn't exactly define it. Because whatever it is, when it happens, these miraculous gifts that he's listed, the tongues, the prophecies, the, the words of knowledge will pass away. And so there's three options, three main things that theologians and commentators put forward, what the perfect could mean. The first one is the completion of the scriptures, also known as the closing of the canon, when the scriptures were finalized and spread, which obviously was after Paul wrote his letters. Um, the second one would be the Second coming, the final return of Christ. And the third one would be the death of the Christian, which brings them into glory. I've tended to side with the first one. Um, and that may be a minority position. It uh, explains why we don't feel like the sign gifts, those miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy are still around. 
Um, the idea that we don't need them after the Bible was completed. That they were foundational gifts in the apostolic era that were used to show that what they were doing and God's salvation was there and his truth was miraculous. And so as the Bible is now the word of God and everything we need, that we don't need those miraculous gifts. Maybe in places where there is no completed scripture, you would see those gifts. Um, but And there's a whole long explanation that I don't want to get into too much. Um, you probably only have to know all that if you're going through ordination. But uh, we don't have time for that. Besides, most people would probably pick one of the other two options. And we're probably on a lot safer ground seeing this as the final return of Jesus. Uh, but either way, this whole section still makes sense in the context of these spiritual gifts. They're all valuable to a degree, but they will pass away, right? We won't need them in heaven. We won't be building the kingdom of God here on earth in the way that we are now. So we won't need to use those gifts. But love will endure. Love will still be with us when every other gift falls away. Andrew Peterson has a beautiful song called After the Last Tear Falls. And it just talks about after all the wars, after all the heartache, after all the insults and ugliness and trauma of this life, there is love waiting for us. A pure love that welcomes us home. I came across this quote in my reading preparation. I think I put it in your outline. On our best days, we long to give this love, right? This agape love described throughout the chapter. And on our worst days, we long to receive this love. But we recognize in these words the greatest way to live, right? The description of agape love in 1 Corinthians 13. We know that that's the greatest way, and yet we know that we're neither worthy of receiving that love, nor are we really capable of giving it. Oswald Sanders, a theologian author, tells the story that he and his wife committed to reading through this chapter every day for a month. And for the first week, they kept remarking how beautiful it was. But the second week, it started getting awkward. And by the third week, he was convinced that it was not a beautiful passage at all. He would find himself doing something or feeling an attitude that was then rebuked by something in the passage. And he felt entirely too challenged by it. And if we were all that diligent and honest, I think we would agree. Now, sometimes we can read this passage. I don't know if you're like me. You read it, and then you think, man, I know a couple people that really need to learn this, really need to get this down. Then you failed Bible application 101, and you need to 
Remind yourself, Michael Jackson, starting with the man in the mirror, right? And as we look at the standard of what agape love demands of us, we should be both humbled by how far short of it we fall and then brought to deep repentance of not meeting God's standard. But thankfully, the Christian faith is built on grace, on the idea that we can't achieve the level of godliness that we need, that we'll never be worthy of God's love by our own efforts. That Christ is the embodiment of all agape love. The one who accomplished pure, self-sacrificing love in our place. To understand agape love, look to the cross. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. 1 John 4, 7 through 11, we actually read this in our responsive reading, and this would be an amazing passage to meditate on, to, to take bits and pieces, just like 1 Corinthians 13. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's stunning. You To practice agape love, You have to be born of God and know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our source, our foundation for being able to love in a selfless way is that God loved us first. You and I will never get this passage right. We'll never be able to substitute our own name. Dave is patient and kind. You can't do that, right? Jesus keeps each one of these attributes perfectly. And we are credited with his righteousness in God's sight. I'll tell you what you can do. Christ in me is patient and kind. Christ in me does not envy or boast. Christ in me is not arrogant or rude. Christ in me does not insist on my own way. Christ in me is not irritable or resentful. Christ in me does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Christ in me bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. And all who know that they fall far short of God's ideal of love, but that God himself is perfect love, and we can reflect that love because we are united to Christ, said, Amen. Take a few moments to pray to God, reflecting on this passage. And I'll close us. Thank you for our study of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for 
Paul's words in so many different situations, but thank you for him bringing it together in chapter 13 and helping us to see all things in the context of agape love that we know we can never accomplish on our own. That we are called to a standard that is so far beyond us because it is a, a description of your pure, holy love. But we praise you that you lavish that love on your people. You choose people who are enemies, who naturally wanted nothing to do with you. And you change our hearts. You reconcile us to yourself through Christ. That Jesus accomplished that work on our behalf so that we could be called children of God, adopted into your family, loved for eternity. And reflecting on that, Lord, teach us to love our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, those in our church, our enemies. God, teach us what true agape love looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 3 and verse 1 and 16. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Amen. Lunch is in the...